Hi everyone, it is now 5 p.m. on this Wednesday evening in Kingston, and you're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM, www.cfrc.ca. Welcome to this week's segment of Today in YGK with me, your host, Alexandra Fernandez. Today in YGK brings you need-to-know news about what's going on right here in our beautiful city of Kingston. From current news, special segments, and interviews with some amazing guests, I'm sure you'll find something of interest that gets you to tune in. If you have any news to share, be sure to contact me via email at news at cfrc.ca. So without further ado, let's get right into it. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome everyone to CFRC 101.9 FM. My name is Joel Sindel and I'm here today with Phil Haddad, an undergraduate history student here at Queen's University. He has recently become one of the winners at this year's Inquiry Queen's Undergraduate Research Conference. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. It's a uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And uh, so, just to jump right into things, how did you get involved with Inquiry Queens? Uh, so, well, to begin, I, I'm I am working on my undergraduate history thesis this year, and um, as such, it's one of the few kind of I suppose larger projects that that students are working on. So, um, yeah, no, we had somebody from Inquiry Queens reach out to a lot of uh, or to a few. Uh, history thesis writers. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, everybody's been putting in a lot of work so far. And I mean, after six months of research and knowing that we're in the middle of a pandemic and we might not really get too many chances to talk about our research. Yeah. I guess all of us just kind of uh, jumped at the opportunity, right? I, well, I did at least. And I was really happy to, uh, to get the chance to, to talk about, talk about my thesis. Awesome. Well, let's. I say we just get right into your uh, right into your research paper. Uh, so, what would you say in one sentence is? Are you trying to illustrate in your research paper? Just just like one sentence. Man. All right. This is maybe well, two. Maybe two. I'll give you. I'll give you two. Okay. So, the premise of my thesis is pretty much an exploration of the intersection of race and capitalist practices throughout the history of the NBA. And what I was looking for, or or what I really came up more than anything, was how some capitalist practices were altered in order to sort of regulate certain voices, particularly the voices of black athletes. So, sorry, yeah, that's 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 how I would chalk it up in about two sentences. No, I, 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 if I had a chance to read it more than the abstract, I, <laughs> it sounds pretty interesting, even though I'm more of a, you know, an NHL kind of guy or, or baseball, but you know, it seems like an interesting topic that a lot of people would definitely be interested in, whether it be someone that is into sports or is more into, you know, watching the intersections of race and, or capitalism in kind of any, any time, type of setting. So it's kind of, you kind of hit all the bases there. Uh, which is yeah, awesome. I guess so. But you know what? It's funny that you mentioned basketball because I mean, I, I, I won't read out the whole thing to everybody who's listening right now, but um, I'll say a, a part of what I do is kind of look at um, the origin of spectator sports and kind of the, the, the notable black athletes who, who broke that, that color barrier. And since you mentioned about ba- uh, baseball, Jackie Robinson was was super key to that. I think it was in 1947 that he managed to make it to the MLB from the Negro Leagues, which um, which were black owned, black operated, black staffed, 
um, at that point in time. The ultimate, they, they ended up folding, but that's because of, of um, some financial issues that came up, but we can get back to that. But yeah, bit, well, it's baseball, boxing, and it, all, all those had a really huge impact on, on the representation of black athletes in sports to begin with. So yeah, it, it really goes beyond just basketball. <clears throat> we might think of basketball as something that's, um, or basketball and football is two athletic bodies that are really filled with, with black players. But um, it started, it actually did start with baseball, funny enough, unless you want to go into boxing, in which case you could argue that certain heavyweight champions made an impact first, but, uh, but no, uh, Jackie Robinson was one of the people who really, really put black athletes on the map. It also didn't hurt that he won a rookie of the year, an MVP and a world series, like pretty soon after he came into the league. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, yeah, just seeing the kind of the origins of how black athletes were able to make their way into the kind of predominantly white, uh, just how white, white athletes were predominantly on top for such a long time, such a long period that they were finally able to get entered into those leagues. And, you know, for a while, as I was just saying, like most televised sports were predominantly white. When would you say is, you know, the NBA or most broadcasted sports? Like when was that big shift that they had, like the NBA from moving from predominantly white to predominantly black? So that's, that's actually a pretty good question. Um, well, well, I'll say the NBA started, um, I think the first black, black player was drafted into the NBA in 1950. Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head by it, but um, yeah, around 1950s when you start seeing black athletes making into the NBA and by 58, I think it's about 13% of the NBA's athletic body at the time were, were, were African-Americans. Um, but by 75, they made up 49%. So yeah, half, half the actual uh, percentage of the entire league. And I think um and even then it, it got even, it, they grew even exponentially more represented because um, in 1978, um, th- this is when there was a big contract dispute regarding the next people who would uh, take over broadcasting lease of the NBA. Um, 75% of the players were black, which um, is actually interesting because today there's actually less um, percentage wise, not, not by much. I think it's by like, point something of a percent yeah 74.2 percent there you go yeah so that that's that sounds about right yeah so um which is actually because of and this is something that goes a little bit further down the line looking at michael jordan kind of how he made international basketball more relevant in part because of his presence in the olympics you have more international players who are coming into the league so though we do still float around like you said 74.2 percent yeah. So a lot of that is because we still have white athletes from the United States, but we also have like big names. I'm sure any basketball fans out there will know like Luka Doncic, Kristaps Przingis, Nikola Jokic, lots of, lots of people from all around the world. That's not even uh, mentioning um, a, a bunch of uh, that. There's a growing market actually of even Asian basketball players. So people who've been fans of the Raptors during the 2019 title run will remember Jeremy Lin and fans of the Raptors this year will remember Utah Watanabe. Um, that, that, and I'm just talking about relating to the Raptors themselves. So 
yeah, there's growing diversity in the basketball world more recently than, than before, but yeah, the, the beginning of really seeing black representation somewhere around 75. And then from there, it just, it pretty much stayed constant at that level in part because of the talent pools and like leagues were expanded all over the world. And that just meant that more people could be represented in a variety of ways. And do you, uh, this is just a food for thought. Um, just like soccer, you know how all over the world soccer or football is probably one of the most famous sports and one of the sports with the most leagues because it doesn't require a lot. Like if you look at hockey, you need equipment, you need all these different things that you have to put piles of money into and replace every once in a while. But you know, soccer, you just need a ball and maybe some cleats to kick it around and basketball. You really just need a ball in the net. Um, do you think that might be why there's a, lo- a large majority of people coming into these sports like soccer and basketball versus more versatile sports or sports that require a lot more, you know, protection or train, not training, but uh, you know, equipment. Uh, do, do you see that comparison there? Oh, absolutely. And I think like even going off of that, um, not just soccer, I think it, I could be, I could be wrong with this. So if anybody's listening, please don't, please don't crucify me for this. But um, I believe soccer is very closely followed by rugby in terms of international appeal for very much the same reasons. All you need is a ball and some shoes and maybe a mouth guard. Um, so some people play pickup a little bit more casually, but, or you can even play touch. Um, but yeah, for, for those very same reasons, like uh, accessibility of equipment plays a huge role in the popularity of sports in general. And that's one of the reasons why American football is still kind of unique to the United States. Now, I mean, th- there, there are some leagues that exist elsewhere, but um. That, that, that's definitely part of it. And another part you actually kind of touched on as well is the development of leagues everywhere. And it, that's obviously a part, a large part of that is helped by, you know, the, the accessibility of the sport itself. Again, only needing like a court and a net and just, just a little piece of trivia for people who, 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 who are curious. Um, James Naismith, the creator of basketball, who for the record was a Canadian um, actually, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, James Naismith, actually the first net that was created, he had pretty much just punched out the bottom of a peach basket and people were just tossing the ball through that. So again, showing the accessibility of basketball. Um, but the variety of leagues that exist around the world and the sort of time and money that people have put into developing basketball infrastructure has really been big in terms of, um, accelerating it's international popularity. So you have, um, there's still, there's still a few markets that are relatively untapped. Like, you know, places, places like Australia have actually a really strong, um, domestic basketball league. Um, so do, so do the Philippines, um, India and India is actually one of the targets for a good growing market. Um, I think really only niche basketball fans will probably recognize this name or, or really proud Canadians. Um, but Sim Bular um, was an Indian Canadian who uh, briefly played for the Sacramento Kings, I believe after being a part of their G League team for quite a while. Um, so that just goes to show improving access to, to the sport as a whole definitely played a huge role in it. And uh, that's been a part at the very least in Europe for, for quite a while and, and definitely contributed to uh, 
to the popularity of sport with black athletes. And that's actually one thing that the, that both football and basketball have an advantage over, I'd say, I'd say probably hockey or, um, or other team or probably rugby is the, the existing infrastructure with the NCAA and how that's existed. People have a talent pool to recruit from there. They have people who look, who have scholarships to get into stuff there. And that's been around for quite a while. Like you look back into history in the 19, I believe even 1958, there's a tennis player, Althea Gibson, um, who was the first black American woman to win a tennis player of the year award. And um, she, she made her way up through the NCAA. So did Bill Russell. So did Will Chamberlain. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's all that speaks to, to, to the access of black people and leagues everywhere. Yeah. And you're, you're just talking about access of uh, black athletes into leagues uh, everywhere. But other than that, it's also really important to have these different role models from around the league, whether it be from history or whether it be in the present, like, uh, well, the late Kobe Bryant, or as you mentioned, or all these different people, whether you take it nowadays, uh, see these people, or if you look back, say you're a baseball player or you're young and you look at Jackie Robinson, he was alive and playing like a, a lot of, not a long time ago. It was the last century, but just looking back, somebody from back then can still resonate with somebody nowadays, which is important to always note that just because like it happened a long time ago, doesn't mean it can't influence someone in the future. Like, like, for example, I'm, I'm a Lebanese guy and I didn't even realize the Lebanese guys could be big into playing hockey until I see a guy like Nazem Kadri out there playing for the, for the Maple Leafs. Right. Um, but yeah. So talking about role models, Bill Russell was probably one of the first and one of the best to, to talk about. And uh, anybody who looks at Bill Russell and how he behaved um, shows that he was unapologetically black and he led by example. He went to the civil rights movements and he did everything he could to be. And he refers to, to this in his autobiography, a whole bunch uncompromising on, on a bunch of stuff. And um, he really, he really oriented a lot of his personal philosophies towards making sure that people saw him as a man, like a human being, rather than somebody who needs to be raised to their level of equality. Um, and then there's also guys who, who, who you want to get into the sport because of the style. Um, and there's guys like um, Kobe Bryant, obviously is a huge thing. You talk to people around the league nowadays. And um, he really set the tone as an, in fact, an impactful player in terms of mindset and aesthetics but Allen Iverson is even bigger. And like, it, it's a shame because Allen Iverson tends to get overlooked a lot in terms of his effect on, on, on black culture or especially at the turn of the century. But like he brought like, sorry, and this is not to equate black culture with ghetto culture, but it's a part of what Allen Iverson represented. He brought together or he brought to the forefront something that was not very approved of by a lot of sponsors or a lot of um, upper class um, bigwigs at the time. And he just did what he wanted to do. He played, he played a type of basketball that was, he had great fundamentals for the record, but he played with lots of, lots of style, like something that you'd see at Rutgers park and, and or like at Venice beach, but he would be coming from, from, from Philadelphia and just like, going to town on people in the NBA because he just could do whatever he wanted. And um, yeah, he, he might live in the shadow of like other basketball players in terms of just like, you know, 
accolades. Like he might not have the most MVPs. He might not have the most championships, but you talk to a lot of people nowadays there are a lot of players from like the, the late two thousands. They'll tell you how much Allen Iverson had an impact on, on being what, who they wanted to be for sure. And, you know, speaking about Jackie Robinson and, and how much of an impact he had, like this is just going, going through a lot of, of research. I found lots of like primary sources and like, and one of these primary sources I find is literally like a letter from, from this lady to Jackie Robinson telling her, tell, telling him how he inspired her so much that he, that she decided to name her kid after him. Like she, she straight up just like, listen, you're one of the first black athlete or one of the first black people who are out there like showing that like we deserve to be on equal playing field. And like, and, and she just, she was like, I'm naming my kid after you. And she sent a picture of the young baby with it too. And it's just like, this is a sort of impact that you see this representation having like on every level. It goes beyond just sports. It goes to like a socio-cultural thing too, because we, we, because I, I just want to say this. A lot of people who aren't necessarily involved in sports tend to dismiss sports um, at, in terms of like their cultural impact. But the same way that like, you know, actors have like a huge impact, like um, Audrey Hepburn and, and, um, and uh, lots of other actors from back then are, are still referred to as kind of like changed the game, like Marilyn Monroe. Like, social figures do a lot to change the way that we see each other and the way that we're allowed to behave around each other or we're sorry allowed with air quotes because like that's what becomes socially acceptable at that time right so it's it's heavy there's lots to think about there and yeah yeah it's i like how you brought up actors because uh who's the actor that played black panther i can't oh my god uh chadwick boseman Chadwick Boseman. And have you heard his, his kind of life story of his being involved in acting? Uh, I, I'm not aware of it. He, so he, at the end of his uh, life, he was one of the largest names in, you know, Hollywood. And uh, he was playing predominantly black characters like Black Panther. He played, you know, Jackie Robinson and a bunch of other people. And he started off in this one play or, or no, it was a soap opera. And they asked him to play this one character where, you know, his mom was a drug addict, his dad left and he couldn't do math, couldn't do all these things. So he was just like, you know, a stereotypical uh, black character. And he, they said he did a really good job. Then he's, they said, you know, whatever you need, you can have it. Uh, just let us know. Cause you're really good. And we want you to stay on for a while. And then he went, Oh, we started asking questions about his character. Maybe if he could have some character growth and then they kind of in the end uh, let him go, didn't let him have the role because he was kind of questioning too much. And then he grew and grew and grew into this massive kind of pop culture icon of predominantly black characters, just because, you know, he stuck with it and actually tried to make change, which is kind of a nice story to hear. Yeah, no, I, and that, and that's a big thing too, I guess. And th- this goes into both sports and, and, or I guess acting and really anything in, in the public sphere in general is, you know, it, it's a shame that people like, it's, it's, sorry, it's not just a shame. It's, it's an absolute tragedy. People have to fight stereotypes and been imposed for years. It's not necessarily stereotypes that, that exist because they, they were with 
they, they happen to, to, to describe some people. It's just stereotypes and been imposed or, or, or stuff that, yeah, it's the same way that like, you know, indigenous peoples were always cast with like a bottle in hand in like movies in the sixties and the seventies or it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just cool to see a lot of people kind of taking the opportunity as, as big pop culture figures to, to, to show that they're on an, I, I say even playing field a lot, but I guess, I guess that's also a, a consequence of using a sports metaphor in there too. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but, but that's, but that's what it is. And, um, I, I guess promoting more, le- less cultural dissonance and more, and more communication, more union between people, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And then we are also talking a lot about how there's growing representation in sports and how, you know, more, more black athletes are being drafted and all this stuff. But, uh, yeah, we were talking earlier about, uh, Masai Ujiri. Ujiri, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he's, you know, in case anyone doesn't know, uh, you could probably talk a lot more about this than I can. But uh, do you want to just comment on that a bit and see kind of how, although we've come so far, some things uh, are still like we're not fully there yet. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, well, to, to those who, who, who are unaware of, um, of the actual event, um, in 2019, right after the Raptors won game six of their final series against the Golden State Warriors, um, you know, after anybody wins a huge championship, which is pretty much the equivalent of a world championship um, with a level of talent in, in the NBA, um, people people run onto the court and included among these, or not even running, because the 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 video evidence proves that he was calm and he did everything the way he was he he was asked and he was pulling out his press pass or sorry his front office um, uh, pass, but um. Masai Ujiri approached the court and there's a sheriff from, I believe, Alameda County. Um, I, unfortunately, if I, if I could remember the sheriff's name um, off the top of my head, I would because he doesn't deserve to go with that or unnamed and should at the very least be held accountable for his actions. Um, but um, he immediately pushed away Masai Ujiri, who's in the process of showing his papers, shoved him back and then went on a pretty much a two-year sort of lawsuit against Masai Ujiri claiming that um, Masai had assaulted him and had made him unable to work. And he'd even put in time for, for, for paid leave due to, due to his injuries. And um, luckily, well, video evidence came out fairly soon after that that wasn't the case, but finally uh, Masai was acquitted. And last I heard, he hopes to countersue, which quite frankly, I hope he does because really deserves what's coming to him if um justice is properly um if, if they if they go about everything properly and 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 hold them accountable as he should be held accountable yeah i was i was talking to my dad actually before i hopped on here and he had a comment about because uh ijiri is uh, is a black man and for predominantly for the longest time management was you know mostly white men for the for the longest time in most sports and players especially black like black athletes players were more of a product they weren't like management they were more like 
okay, we're, we have you here and you're a player, yada, yada, yada. And now more black men are entering into management positions. And he made the comment about how um, the, the police officer probably didn't even think twice about him being actually in management. He probably just thought it was some random fan or something, not even thinking twice about it. And that's shows kind of the systemic ideology that a lot of people have when it comes to sports, where it's mostly a white uh, held area rather than actually, you know, it's very diverse. No, for sure. And, and I think your, your dad brought up actually a pretty good point. Like I, I think as of, man, I'm not even sure if this is the case anymore, but um, in 2017, as far as I know, there's only two black front office uh, bas- or president of basketball operations one of whom was Masai Ujiri, the other is Doc Rivers, who I think has since been relieved of that position since he's gone to uh, to the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, and all, representation has improved, I'd say marginally, to be to be completely honest. But you're right that 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 systemic uh, bias that's ingrained against black j- just uh, black people in general, uh, especially shown by the fact that you have somebody who's supposed to be Let's let's be clear. This is a, a deputy sheriff from Alameda County in, in San Francisco, or sorry, in in, uh, in in Southern California, who decided that he had the absolute right to just deny somebody the the ability to make the court. It took it quite literally took somebody holding him back and a basketball player in uniform reaching out to embrace Masai Ujiri. For, for him to, to, to not continue assaulting one of the few black representatives um, among front, the, the NBA front offices. It's crazy to think about, but, but, that's, but that's the reality we live in, unfortunately. And, and that's what needs to change. Yeah, which is, it's great that you're writing this, uh, this research paper because it, it allows people to think more and more about kind of have these thought provoking conversations to talk about kind of, you know, systemic racism or just how color is perceived in sports or just in life in general. It's just to have those conversations to start up. Yeah, no, there, there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And, um, and that's not that's not even touching on on the WNBA for the record. I mean, if we're talking about the commodification of black athletes, then we should also kind of look towards talking about the WNBA and not even necessarily their commodification, but the very least like the sort of disrespect that also accompanies people who who face both gendered and racialized disadvantages or systemic disadvantages and bias and, and all that. Yeah, that one uh, that one video that came out the other day uh, had a lot of people uh, not up to arms, but very very angry about that. Just seeing the difference in the the two weight rooms uh, is kind of honestly just is kind of like a lesser version, like a symbolic nature of the the entirety versus the men and the women's uh, leagues. Yeah, and it's crazy because it's still the same amount of money. Like these universities are. Let's let's be clear. And I and I just like to state that I mean this is my personal opinion, and this isn't necessarily reflective of of reality. But well, except to me because I think I think this is the case. These like these athletes in the NCAA are being exploited for for their talent. Let's be honest here; they're not getting paid for it. They're getting an education, sure, but you know, uh, in accordance to like adhering to strict measures and 
And, you know, at the end of the day, if they follow a certain path, there's always a chance that they don't necessarily get the chance to, to finish that education. And then that limits their opportunities elsewhere. And um, that's doubly so the case for, for, for female athletes. And the video that you're talking about in question where, you know, you see millions of dollars going into these universities, but, you know, barely anything being put to the side for, for um, athletic training for, for women. I, I'm, it's just at that point, you got to think like, how, how is this in any way passing the scrutiny of people who are in charge and who are thinking, yeah, this is definitely the way to go ahead. But, but I, but again, I digress because I feel like I keep going on these tangents. <laughs> and if I can say, if there's anything that I can add um, just in terms of this research in general, um, and this is this is kind of like uh, again part of what motivated my thinking. Um, well, well, first off, I've always been passionate about basketball. I've been passionate about basketball history and basketball history, um, all three of those. <clears throat> that being said, um, I do think that, and and this should definitely be highlighted um, today more than ever, following the abuses of police authority over African Americans, like exemplified through the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, historians and all other scholars, um, are obligated to dive into an exploration of the manifestations of black civil rights and, and social justice and popular culture. And to do that, I chose a topic that I believe highlights a control of black male athletes images and their identities in the NBA as black athletes um, since they've historically made up like the majority of that athletic body. So I'm really happy I got a chance to, to talk about that to a certain degree. And um, to anybody listening, if you are at all interested in hearing more about this research topic, you can always reach out to me and uh, um, you could probably find me on Instagram at hundred dollar fills, or uh, you can, uh, you can always just email me. Um, at philipprhadad at gmail.com. And um, yeah, I'm always, I'm always looking to have a conversation about this kind of stuff. So if you'd like. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, that's amazing. Uh, thanks for letting people talk to you because I know some people will definitely be interested in this sort of topic, whether it be uh, the NBA specifically, or even just uh, talks about race or things like that uh, in general. And also, thank you for coming on because it was a it was a great conversation. Thank you very much for for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure, and um, yeah, hopefully uh, we can keep this kind of conversation going, whether whether even just among us casually or even with other people who are looking to get to know a little bit more about what it means to to to, to address these sort of issues as they stand both in in political fields, cultural fields, social fields, all that. So yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, no worries at all. And uh, for people listening into our conversation, whether you're just tuning in now or have been here since the start, thank you. Uh, but everyone, that was Phil Haddad, uh, an undergraduate history student here at Queen's University. He has recently become one of the winners at this year's Inquiry Queen's Undergraduate Research Conference. And nicely enough he's offered uh, if anyone wants to reach out and have a little conversation with him his email is philipprhadad at gmail.com so if you want to reach out to him there just give him a little email 
And thank you for anyone listening to CFRC 101.9 FM. Have a great rest of your day, folks. Thank you for listening to Today in YGK, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples.